Okay, kids, it's the Little Brown School and Library Podcast, and I am allegedly Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing. Now, why this informal and somewhat casual and perhaps not entirely appropriate and professional introduction? This is because my excitement cannot be contained within the confines of a business card or the roles required of the use of a business card because... Today, our guest is Chuck Wendig. Oh, Chuck Wendig. Chuck Wendig is our guest today. Now, I love Chuck Wendig. I love Chuck Wendig. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is cool. And I'm going to try not to squee because it hurts the listener's ears when I squee. I've gotten the emails about it. But uh, I enjoy science fiction and fantasy books. I enjoy science fiction and fantasy books that have attitude and commentary, that they have a plot that is so good that you cannot stop reading, and characters that you will love and hate and hate to love and love to hate, and you are perplexed by your own reactions to them, so you do in a good, solid, moral inventory and come up with, I don't know what. Chuck is the author of numerous books, among them Star Wars Aftermath, the Miriam Black thrillers, the Atlanta Burns books, Zero Slash Invasive, Wanderers, and there's a book by an adult publisher called Book of Accidents, as well as Damn Fine Story, which is about the art of writing. If you are an intrepid reader and listener, you may also visit him at his blog, which is called Terrible Minds, which I don't know that I love it because I think Chuck's mind is uh, not a terrible thing, unless we're talking about the ancient Near Eastern version of terrible, which is uh, a glorious, amazement, lightning struck thing that will will just uh, make your mind explode with its amazingness. Now, yeah, we'll, go with that. we'll go with that. We will go with that. Yes. Now, mm-hmm. I, it is not not safe for work. It also is NSFL, not safe for life. Li- no, that's, that's like not existence. true. Don't be lying to that's us, not, Chuck. Yeah, no. Like it's you should be beyond in a in a realm beyond. You should. A, that's distant, true. a distant place. Yeah. So let's just put it this way: we're not in blanket training anymore. Let's just no. put it that way. Um, <laughs> now, Chuck comes to the Little Brown Books for Young Readers list, and I will tell you listeners throughout the virtual universe, on the morning, the bright Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. when your Aunt Vic is still not excited about life or anything involved in it, I had to talk about this book, Dust and Grim, and I just was, please give it to me, please inject it into my veins, I need it, I need it now, I need it now, please give it to me. And then, eventually, in the fullness of time, they gave it to me. Dust and Grim is the tale of Molly, who is, as they say in the middle grade world, beset by pointless people, and must find her way to a home and a purpose. She, along the way, encounters her brother Dustin, and kindly and gently, we will describe Dustin as an extremely vertical person. He's so upright that there is nothing in him that cannot be just, it's vertical all the way. Vertical. That is a spine with not a lot of give on it. But for he reasons, probably even lays down that way, I mean, I figure. I think yeah. he sleeps standing up like the Coneheads that yeah. sleep standing up. Like a vampire. Like a vampire. Yeah. Now I have to rethink this damn book. Thanks, Chuck. I was hoping mm-hmm. to do yeah, that until the end. Oh, I said damn. I'm sorry. Look, guys, I'm going to tell you, Chuck and I 
are salty people, and we're going to try to keep it on the low because it is a family and student-oriented podcast, and we understand this. But we may have an enthusiasm. We there ask is. your forgiveness yeah. in advance. Yeah. So, Chuck, this book, Dustin Grimm, it involves things that I super love because I uh, am obsessed not with death, but with the dead and how living, sure. living people treat the dead. So when they gave me this book and it's a mortuary and it's a mortuary for monsters, I was like, yes, please sign me up. And then I was reading about Molly and I was reading about Dustin and that uncle, sorry, we'll edit that one out. Uh, <laughs> uh, it just was captivating to me and looking at Molly and all of these things. I, I just have to say, I love this book more than any demon baby I could have. Thank you. It is. But don't, don't sell your demon baby out like that. That's not fair. Well, you should hear what I say when I hate something. So Demon Baby is pretty good. <laughs> it's tightly plotted and tartly worded. The language is great. This is what I would expect from an officially sanctioned Chuck Wendig high quality project trademark. But middle grade is a new audience. True. There are True. special conventions. There's special customs. There's special, you know, it's not dumbed down from YA or adult, but it is its own different beast. And you've done books with teen appeal, but this really is new territory. What attracted you to writing for this age group? And did you encounter any unexpected challenges along the way of, of building this story? Well, it's um, I have a son, and he is uh, now the ripe old age of 10. And so we are firmly in the realm of, uh, you know, these kind of books. And I knew he was very young, right? Well, I think he was like three years old when he picked up a book I'd written called Blackbirds, which is decidedly not a friendly, uh, family-friendly book. And he's like, oh, I want to read this book. Read this to me. And I was like, no, I can't. You can't have that book till you're 37. That's that's the age you can have that one is 37. So I was like, I should probably write something for you prior to 37. I felt like I should meet him in that middle. Uh, and even Star Wars, you know, is, is still a kid-friendly book. But at the same time, it's not written um, about kids. It doesn't uh, detail their world in any meaningful mm -hmm. way. And I... Um, sort of watching him grow up and watching him, the things that he loves and the things that amuse him and try to find ways to, you know, like part of the great joy of both being married and having a son is like doing bits, like being joke, having jokes and running like little skits and funny things. And how can you sort of uh, improv and outguess your your, your progeny and, and make them laugh and see how they make you laugh. And so uh, to some degree, the book is just an experiment in can I write a book that my uh, will make my son laugh and make him scared and, and make him interested at the same time. Because, you know, kids are never excited by what their parents do. Like, you could be like, you know, I'm I'm a football player. I'm a rock star. And they're just like, whatever. You're very embarrassing to me. Please stop talking. Uh, even Star Wars, like, he would be interested in all of the other Star Wars people I knew. But it really didn't matter that much that I wrote Star Wars. So uh, I think I did it, though, because I wrote this book and uh, I got the first arcs in and it had some of the art in place and it had some of the because there's like font tricks that they did mm -hmm. like some of the characters mm -hmm. speak with a different font uh and he started looking at this and he's like i really want to read this so i was like yes i did it it was all worth it if if nothing else comes out of this uh i made my child want to read one of my books i love that so really it was vanity really it was a vanity <laughs> a it sounded good to start but now i realize i'm just a vain uh narcissist 
I, I think it's a much better answer than what you would get out of Philip Roth if you asked him about my wife as a communist. I mean, I know if you think about the story behind that book, you're like, oh, okay, buddy, that yeah. says more about you. Um, <clears throat> I love many of the side characters in this book, and I, I think you could pop open the book to any point, and I, I, I just popped it open to a page, and it reminded me of something that I love. And speaking of font tricks, Florg will fix this. Florg will open the book of space and time and turn to the page that takes Florg to the cemetery. This uncle of yours will explode in a rain of viscera as Florg nests within his ribcage and is born anew a hundred times. Florg. I mean, first of all, where does Florg come from? But also, can can Florg be with me? Is that a spirit that I can invite to inhabit my person? I would like to. Yeah, yeah, Florg, um, I don't, sometimes we write things and we don't precisely know where they come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know I'm writing a book, and I know there's um, monsters and monster types you're dealing with, and I wanted them to be somewhat known and familiar, but also tweaked and interested, you know, interesting in a way uh, for the book that you, maybe you haven't seen before. Uh, but then, I, you know, I'm always fascinated by like, well, what what else is there that doesn't look like a thing you know? What else is there that is a a mysterious component, a creature unlike any creature you could imagine? So unlike that you could imagine that possibly you literally can't imagine it, and you can't even see this creature. Uh, and Florg happened, uh, and in another of my books, I have a, a, a sort of deranged, delusional artificial intelligence who speaks in all caps, and I was like, what if I really, like, Florged that up? Like, what if I really took that volume knob on this sort of delusional intelligence and turned it to 11 and then broke the knob off and threw the knob into a hole somewhere? And that was Florg. Florg just became this, And but then also, like, like very lovable, <laughs> sort of a very simplistic, um, straightforward creature. Um, it's always fun to write characters who don't act like you expect them to, even as the writer who, because they're like, just like throwing a, a beehive into a room. You're just like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just threw a beehive into a room and now we're just going to find out. And Florg is definitely that beehive in a room kind of character. I love that answer because as I think about Molly, she's actually sort of a beehive thrown into Dustin's room mm-hmm. when she yes. happens upon him. And in some ways, she is herself rather monstrous in the old sense of the word. Uh, for those of you who did not go to a lot of graduate school with your Aunt Vic uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature and study um, Assyrian bas reliefs of uh, ancient Near Eastern temples, in the old ways of thinking, a monster is a being that is created from different parts. So wings of an eagle, tail of a lion, you call that a griffin specifically, but it's a monster. In a lot of ways, Molly is a composite, not unified being at the beginning of the story because her family relationships are so fractured and she is not clear on who she is. So there's a certain way in which it's monster meeting monster there at the mortuary. Yeah, I agree with that. She is um, a little bit of a unintentional chimera and sort of uh, needs to find her true pieces and put them together. I like that. That's a good way to put her. And I thought it was super great. I said super great. I know. But guys, I said to you at the beginning, my enthusiasm was going to get get out of control here. It's off the charts. <laughs> it really kind of is. Um, and then going to the mortuary. So again, friends... Your Aunt Vic spent a lot of un, a lot a extra amount of time at cemeteries, just recreationally, because my mom super liked cemeteries and liked finding out about why cemeteries look the way they do. 
And my dissertation was on trees and death. So yes, hitting all my catnip spots here. But we think about a mortuary as a passage place where you're moving from one community to another community um, in a very broad sense and thinking about Molly entering this space as something that is cobbled together. She's not unified yet. She's not integrated yet. Thinking about the cosplay and I have a whole other theory on the cosplay, which we will not go into here. But what was the attraction to you of having this mortuary be the place where Molly, a very disorganized character, meets Dustin, who is maybe overly organized? <laughs> just a little, a little tad uh, overly organized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I just thought it was an interesting, the two of them together, right? Because here's, here's the thing about uh, dealing with monsters and death and mortuaries. These many monsters are already, in our view, in some way dead or are in some way undying or unable to be killed. So they have all of these special considerations that we don't have as um, the fleshy uh, animated meat bags of humanity that we are. And so um, I don't think in some ways as much as uh, Dustin is very good at the uh, business side of things and the, or the arrangement of everything, um, even the cemetery that we meet in the book is a, a sort of a chaotic um, mad place. It's, it's a little bit Alice in Wonderlandy, and he is not that kind of person. Mm -hmm. So I think he uh, is good at half of that and not good at the other half of it. And Molly is would be the flip side of that. She is bringing um, that chaos and that uh, the trickster spirit and that monstrous little bit, the chimera bit, to sort of fill in the, the half of his moon that is not complete. Uh, and he doesn't know that, and he resents that, and she doesn't know that, and she resents that. Uh, and, you know, the question is, of course, in the book, do they get over that resentment and become one giant effulgent moon? I love that. A giant effulgent moon. I think that is going to be the next name of my Twitter account, of which I have several. Excellent. It might be my memoir. I, don't know. I would love that. I, you know, effulgent no. is one of my favorite words. Um, I do love this idea of uh, Molly as chaos agent and Dustin. Okay, so that is all of the construction in my neighborhood, construction tracks in my neighborhood, uh, merging together and unable to get through the very tiny street I live on. So, <laughs> lost my thought because of the six horns that were just going off. So I really enjoy dis your discussion of um, uh, Molly as a chaos agent and Dustin as almost a chaos manager, but not a very good one, and having to have both sides of this. And I really enjoy the thinking about the different types of, I'm a big believer in Gardner's uh, multiple intelligences because everybody has a different way of processing the world and a community is made by figuring out all the different ways of knowing that are present in that community and telling each other a story and how you get to the end of its coherent set of stories, which I think is really great in terms of middle grade because this is the age group where there is the most variety in the reading community. Again, sorry, it is all about me, people, but you knew that. As a young child, I became obsessed with Nixon because why can't I see the end of Scooby-Doo every Saturday for six months? And so at 10, I was reading All the President's Men and every book about Nixon I could get my hands on. But did I understand all of that? So you have kids who can read the words but not fully process their meaning. But then on the other hand, you have kids who can't read some of this terminology, but they're more emotionally prepared for the resonances in the story. And I think about Molly and Dustin, how they come together 
sort of modeling that behavior almost. Well, they do. It's true. Yeah, Dustin is definitely the type who he can read it all, but I don't know that he gets it. Molly can't always read it, but I think she understands things more intuitively than he does. And over the course of the story, I'm going to be honest with you, Molly, I was, at first I was like, sweetheart. A stern glance. A st maybe just like, yeah. <clears throat> no. No Minecraft this week, yeah. <laughs> yes, because she's not, she doesn't, I, you had the courage to have a character who is not always likable. Yeah, I, I find unlikable characters some of the most likable, if that makes any sense. I find, uh, and I think that's because, I mean, for lack of a better term, we're all a little unlikable at times. Like, we don't, nobody is a perfect paragon of uh, behavior, except you, obviously. Uh, but oh, for the rest of us mere, you know, mortals, the, the, you know, we're all kind of fumbling our way through. And, um you know, we have this constant battle in us of the selfish versus the selfless. We're all trying to sort of be better people while at the same time being, but I really want potato chips right now. And I, you know, I will push you down a hill to get your potato chips. Like this feeling of, I want what I want, but of course I know that's not always the best way to be. Uh, and I like writing characters who are at the crux of that and finding that journey for themselves and who don't always do it immediately. Like, well, I'm just the selfless being who enters the story glorious and wonderful and I'm smiles and radiant and how dare anything go wrong. Um, I don't like necessarily characters who the world goes wrong to them, but I like characters who sometimes maybe are not always doing the right thing to the world around them. Um, and that is interesting and that gives us a place for growth and um, also a fun place to explore. It's a playground. And anytime you can put characters on a playground, uh, I think it's great for the writer and then ideally good for the reader. As I think about Molly, she I fall more in love, fell more in love with her over the course of the book she doesn't become necessarily less spiky. No. But she becomes really, going back to my earlier point, less monstrous to me because I get time to understand her. And I think as a character, she almost learns to speak to the other characters like Florg and Dustin and several of the other characters. At the beginning, not understanding, not wanting to understand, retreat into defensiveness, being monstrous, being that beehive thrown into the room. But then over the course of the narrative, not giving up themselves so much as uh, becoming more congruent, I guess, for lack of a better word. That feels right. Another theme I think in this that, that emerges from that is independence or emerging adulthood. And I sent you this question about, but during the course of our conversation, I have rethought this question. So yay me. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> um, absent or pointless adults are a huge trope of middle grade literature. I mean, think about Roald Dahl. That's the seminal example. There's not one adult worth they could be nice, they could be kind, but are they effective? No, they're not effective. And there are countless, countless books about that. Is it, Whether it's a fantasy book or historical fiction or, or contemporary books in middle grade, parents and other adults are pointless. And this book, Dustin Grimm, is no exception. Dustin's sort of a replacement adult in a way, but not really. Not really. Because he's got issues. Um, he wants to be. He's just, oh, that poor boy. He so desperately <laughs> wants to be. So Molly, she seems surrounded by inadequate role models, and she's finding a way to muddle through. And I initially thought about this story um, all the way up through this conversation as emerging independence. But in some ways, I think it might be emerging dependence in the right yeah, way. Yeah, it gets to her. Yeah, she has independence at the beginning. 
and um, maybe isn't good at it and maybe needs to relearn, like you said, dependence, a healthy dependence. Yeah. What was interesting to you about exploring that and how long did it take you to, to really think about where the balance was on that well, dynamic? You know, there's a couple things uh, that go on there. The first is that um, having that, uh, the pointless adult problem or missing adult problem, absent adult problem is both a wonderful fantasy and a terrible fear for children. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, especially kids at this age, I can see it in my own son where he's like, I want to do my own thing. But then sometimes he's like, I absolutely need you to help me with my own thing, mm -hmm. which sounds contrary, but like I need you to boost me up so I can somehow figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, but at the same time, he wants to do it all himself. And um, it's such this fascinating interstitial place of the fantasy is like, you know, stand by me. I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to ride away from this place and be gone all week. I'm going to run away. It's like the fantasy of running away when you're a kid. Like, I'm going to run away and you can't stop me. I catch a train, get my hobo bindle and we're gone. We're out of here. Uh, and then it's like day one. You're like, I am starving and I want my blanket. and I'm very sad. So um, I kind of wanted to find that interstitial space. But then also at the same time, I kind of do things with my son where I'm like, I try to get him to not always entirely trust me. <laughs> I always want to be like, I like, I'll like tell him these stories that are not true. And like, until they're, they're they break his belief system, then that's, a, you're messing with me. I'm like, I am messing with you. Don't always trust adults. We don't always know what we're doing. Um, it's a good idea to sort of, uh, you know, instill not only an independence, but also to create a natural distrust. And especially kind of in the world we live in now, where you go online and you can read expert opinion from an absolutely inexpert person. Uh, and I don't want him to just blindly sort of follow um, an idea or a fact as if it's a true thing. So I want him to have the ability to critically think. And that uh, also comes into that kind of interstitial space of that, you know, uh, independence versus dependence. Dependence on the right people. Uh, in the case of that sort of expert thing, like a dependence on a body of experts, a group of people who are smarter than you are, who uh, all agree on something, not just, uh, you know, dependence uh, on the wrong one person or an independence on yourself when you actually don't know anything at all. Um, so uh, finding that space for Molly and then for Dustin too. I, I think that answer works really well, not only for um, adult child relationships, but I'm also thinking about this critical age um, when that pack mentality takes just super hold yeah. of kids um, and that tension between standing out and being special that is really encouraged by adults versus the pressure to conform and not stand out and not be the weak one in the herd is the yes. issue. Yes, and also not to also just um, believe everything your friends tell you. I remember when I was a kid, there was a, a boy who was like, oh, I was on my bike and I hit a herd of deer with my bike and then I fell off, and then but I made friends with the deer and we rode away. And it was a great story. I love the story. But I'm like, that's clearly not, that didn't happen. We all know that, but the, like we all didn't know that that didn't happen. So people were like, "Oh, can you introduce us to the deer? Like, are we can we become part of the deer pack?" I was like, "We don't. This is this is a dangerous. He's going to lure you into some sort of deer trap. No, this is a deer situation. We don't get involved with that." I I have the idea of this ten year old kid hitting a herd of deer with his huffy. Yep. <laughs> and I have an imagination of like like he's it's the one it's the huffy with the banana seat. It's the hobby with the banana seed. It's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And then the deer adopt him as one of their own. Like, as and they give him a special, a special deer name. Yeah. Some sort of antlers, faux antlers that he can wear and ride on his bike with his antlers. 
See, this is a good story. <laughs> like, All right, that's fine. I'm sorry, friend from elementary school. I was wrong. Your story's good. I'm taking it. Uh, I don't see why not. He, it was gifted to you. What you make of it is your it own. Gifted. Because isn't that what so we've I been doing, right. you know, ever ever since we started making sounds, is telling each other stories and then hearing the, hearing that story and telling it to somebody else. It's all been one it big is. game of telephone. I, w I will say, though, and I feel uniquely equipped to tell the story because uh, as a kid, we, and this is, this is true, I'm not making this up, children who might be listening, uh, we raised white-tailed deer. I literally we raised our first two in the house. I had two baby deer in our house for the first year of their lives. And they were so friendly. You could go out in the deer with the pen, the, the meadow where we kept them in this kind of massive enclosure. And you could run like you could gamble about with deer, like a, like a fawn in Greek myth, just running with deer. So that was actually, that's technically it turns out I, I was adopted by the deer. So that's actually kind of a true story, but in a different way. What was your deer name? Uh, the first two were Rudy and Flower. Okay, now I'm thinking about Bambi, and uh, it's never good when you start thinking about Bambi. It's not good. It's no, no. There, I mean, and there's some tragedy in the farm life. So I, we, you know, well, we'll just stop there. We'll stop there. Yeah. Flat. Now I'm thinking about that skunk. Flower. No. Flower. Yeah. And Thumper is delicious, but that's a that's a story for another. Day. <laughs> that's totally different. It is a story issue. for another day. Um, it, but this takes me back to you know, like non-human. Relation, relationships between humans and non-humans, and you know, talking about deer, and the fact that I am obsessed with not one, not two, but three Japanese YouTube channels about otters. Oh, a good choice. Uh, they're raising otters as pets in the home, which I still don't understand. Oh, like riv river otters or sea otters? Or uh, there's one set that's with river otters and two sets that are uh, uh, sea otters. It's oh, bananas. Sea otters can be uh, some, some rough... Rough nature. I, I I wouldn't be having otters in my house. I know that, but that and they're oh. weird hands. But it does sure. make me think about non-human relations, you know, relationships between humans and non-humans. And we're well, going back to Flork. I am very familiar, also in middle grade, with the trope of saving the world and battling monsters. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we've seen it from quite this angle before, where the alleged monsters or the non-human characters are given uh, as much uh, emotional weight. What is the attraction, you think, to putting these types of characters in middle grade stories or in novels, period? And and how did you want to make this different for this book? Uh, you know, on the, on the surface level, it's just because I think monsters are cool. And I, you know, anytime we make something into a character, like I, I am... I'm not one of those um, sort of George R. R. Martin types who's like they're all bad inside, and we're gonna kill this one now and kill that one. Like I, I love them. I love these characters, and I want to scratch the paint off and see what's going on. And um, so, just on a sort of a selfish, greedy level, I just want to play with monsters uh, as the action figures in this particular sandbox. But also, like from a deeper level of sort of a metaphorical thing, I think monsters are a great stand-in when we let them be of. Um, you know, the sort of the weirdness inside of us mm -hmm. or um, people we don't know, other, the, the, the sort of the quote-unquote other. I think there's a lot of interesting things you can do with, um, you know, anytime we meet new people in our lives, you go to a new school or, you know, you meet a new family or new people move into the neighborhood, there's always this sort of hesitation of like, well, I don't know who they are. And if you don't, you know, like we have a neighbor who for a long time, uh, we hadn't met them, and so 
they become kind of almost mysterious and sinister when you don't meet them. You're like, what are they doing? Are they looking at us right now? And you sort of like peer out your blinds. Like, do we know them? But once you meet them, they're just, they're interesting, complex people just like anyway. Uh, and so I thought it was fun to play with monsters as not necessarily a thing that was good or bad, but just like people, they can go either way. Uh, and they're not automatically, and of course we shouldn't even call them monsters because by the uh, dictum of the book, that's that's not um, a, a, what they want to be called. No. Um, supernatural denizens, uh, you know, so that's that's who they are. I just feel like there's a, there's a lot of fun there to sort of see. Um, they're just like people, uh, you and I, and they just have different, different problems maybe, uh, but some similar ones too. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the podcast, Chuck. I, I just really do enjoy this book. There's a lot of emotional resonance to it. I, I One of the things I really like about it is you've created a lot of space within the story for a reader to put themselves in and to spin off from the story as well. I, I see this book as uh, the book that launched a thousand fan fictions among middle graders. <laughs> If only. I, I love that's such an honor to have anybody who wants to play in your world. Well, because you're just thinking about, well, Florg, and I read that moment, and all, uh, all what else would come out of Florg's mouth? After oh, and he's it's he tempting for off. Florg to yeah. just write all Florg. Just like it's like all Crunch Berries, the cereal. You like, it's probably too much, but you want to do it. Look, I uh, want a Florg graphic sure. novel. I'm not going to lie to you. I want a Florg graphic novel. Uh, I would like it to be an easy reader. I sure. would like us to learn geography with Florg. I would like mm -hmm. us to learn spelling and pronouns with Florg. I, I, I would like a, a Saturday morning um, acid trip cartoon with Florg. Like with Florg. Not, the, not the stuff we have now. I want it like it was in the 1970s with a lot of foam and visible wires mm -hmm. and, 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 and that weird stuff. Because I just, I yeah. love that character. But there's... Dustin Grimm has a lot of emotional resonance about family and friendships, loyalty, disloyalty, all of that jam. But also these places where young readers and not so young readers can put themselves into the book to think about its moral psychology and what choices they would make as well. So I think it's a very uh, expansive and capacious book for the young reader who's, who's looking for something that's challenging and fun. So I thank you. Cool. For that. Thank you. That's awesome. So, uh, gentle listeners uh, out there in the digital universe, I believe faithfully that I have managed to uh, erase all of the untoward language that Chuck and I, but mostly me, because it is my fault and all about me, uh, popped off with during the course of this uh, conversation. Just, but you're kind of lower sodium. That's all that it is. <laughs> I, I hope that I did get all of that out of there. Uh, but I apologize after the fact if I didn't. You know, you guys have heard me for years. You know what the deal is. Um, Dust and Grimm, featuring Molly and Dustin and, and Florg and a wonderful cast of characters at a, a cemetery and mortuary. Um, that's really amazing. Dustin Grimm should be on your shelves now, on your reading piles, in your library programs, and perhaps in your schools. I think it could be a really excellent companion to Frankenstein. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.